your Bibles with you this morning, I want you to open up to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to begin reading at verse 27 and go through verse 30. This morning I'll also be in James, so if you have uh, maybe a ribbon in your Bible or you can open up it on your phone or your app, you can turn to James chapter 1 as well. The majority of our time will be in Matthew 5, but then we'll sneak over to James 1 just for a moment a little bit later. Over the last few weeks, we've been trying to answer the question of how should Christians live in an unchristian world. Uh, we recognize that, uh, that in the days in which Jesus lived, in the days in which his disciples lived, uh, they needed to be reminded, they needed to be prepared for, for the life that they were to live as his disciples in the midst of difficulties. And so we know that we have this same difficulty. We live in an unchristian world. And so as believers, followers of Jesus, we need these same instructions that Jesus gave those disciples. We began several weeks ago by acknowledging Jesus' call, beginning in verse 13, to be salt and light how we need to help preserve our world and punch holes in the darkness, we said. And we also saw, beginning in verse 17, that we as believers in an unchristian world need to hold in a special place the Word of God. Last week, we talked about how we need to be concerned about our inner righteousness that will then be seen in our outward lives. Today, we're going to see a very similar message to last week. As a matter of fact, the very, the very message that Jesus gives to his disciples, beginning in verse 27, is basically the very same thing that he gave us in the passage right before this, that we need to be concerned as the people of God to be righteous on the inside. And then as we determine that to be righteous on the inside, that will be seen in the way in which we present ourselves outwardly. I'm reminded of that preacher joke that goes something like this. A young pastor who had never pastored before was called to his first church and, and he got in the pulpit and he preached that day on the, the wonderful passage of Scripture where Jesus calls his disciples, tells them to drop their net and come and follow him. And after the service was over, he was met at the back door and everyone shook his hand and hugged his neck and told him how wonderful of a message that was and how much they appreciated it. And then the next Sunday he got up and he, he preached the, the same sermon, drop your nets and follow Jesus. And uh, when he went to leave that day, he was met in the back with everybody and they were, they, were, they were telling him that they loved him and they appreciated him, which in case you didn't know, that's what you tell the preacher when he doesn't preach well. It's you did good job or I love you, which means bless your heart kind of deal in preacher speak. And then the third week he came, third week being a pastor, he he preached the sermon, and you, you know it. He preached the same thing. Drop your nets and, and follow me. And so at the back door, the deacons had gathered together when he started the sermon, and so they all met him at the back door after they had left from smoking underneath the oak tree, and they met him back there, and they said, they said, Preacher, you've been here three weeks. You've preached the same sermon all three weeks. And he said, That's right. And when you get that one right, I'm going to move to my second sermon. That's kind of the way Jesus is to these disciples. He's teaching these disciples. And he's saying, I want you to be concerned about your inner righteousness. So if you have, if you have, if you have anger or hatred or name-calling in your heart, you've got to rid yourself of that. You've got to get rid of that thing that's inside of you. And then the, the, the next, really next teaching is the very same message. Why it doesn't speak about hatred, murder, and anger, listen to what it says. You have heard that it was said... You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. 
If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Let's pray together. God, we pray that you would make this tough passage of Scripture, God, relevant in our lives this morning. God, as we navigate the waters of this this teaching to your disciples, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see where it applies into our own lives. That, God, it it is your desire that your disciples are righteous from the inside out. God, that you'll help us, Lord, this morning pursue that inward righteousness that you call your disciples to. Lord, help us to know what needs to change in our lives. Help us to know who to trust in our lives. God, help us to seek that righteousness. But God, most of all, God, I pray that we are reminded this morning that ultimately our righteousness comes from Jesus and his word. You are are the only means by which we might be made righteous. So God, help us, Lord, to pursue that which you have called us, to pursue that which you have made us. We ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit not leave us, God. We ask that your Holy Spirit would overwhelm us with his presence and speak to us each individually. In the name of Jesus, we pray and ask all of these things. Amen. First of all, I want you to see the first point is a similar point that we had last week, and that is that Jesus continues to call for an inner righteousness. You remember last week, it says, uh, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit murder, right? And so we then learned that Jesus wasn't only calling them not to kill another person, but that Jesus was also calling them to something deeper. He was concerned about their inner righteousness, not not to harbor hatred in your heart and not to call or insult other people, creations of God. And today it begins a very similar way. Instead of you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit murder, he says you shall have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. This, just like the sixth commandment, is the seventh commandment, and, and it's, a, it's a proclamation by God that we as followers of Christ, or even in the Old Testament, as God fears, we should not be those that commit adultery. And Jesus takes it even further then. He takes it not only from the physical act of adultery, but he brings it also to a question of our mind and our heart. And he does this because what begins in our minds... What begins in our hearts will ultimately be seen in our feet. Just like last week, if we have hatred and anger in our hearts, ultimately that will be seen in murderous acts or murderous attitudes towards other people. And we need to not forget, just as serious as murder is to God and as one of His commandments, so is adultery. You could go to adultery to Exodus chapter 20 or also Deuteronomy chapter 5 and, and you could see where in those proclamations of the law where God gives this command that you should not commit adultery. It's, a, it's another one of those commands like murder that the Pharisees would have boasted in their accomplishment, right? They would have declared, well, I've never committed murder and likewise, I've never committed adultery. And maybe even some of us, we want to boast in this obedience to the law as well. I have never committed committed murder, and I've never committed adultery. But yet Jesus does like he does last week. Jesus takes this away from just the physical act of adultery into the thoughts of our minds. We need to be reminded also, I think, that that this act of committing adultery was, was serious to God. 
It was serious to God. And I told you, He gives us this command in two places. But also, if you were to go to Leviticus and, and read God's description of adultery and, and also what happens to those that commit adultery, you would find that Jesus proclaims that you ought to be stoned for committing adultery. The old covenant demanded death as a repayment for this committing a physical act of adultery. But we don't have to go even to the Old Testament to understand this was the understanding of the punishment of such. You could just go to John's gospel where that adulterous woman was surrounded by the Pharisees and the scribes of her day. You remember the story. They were getting prepared to stone her for committing adultery. And Jesus shows up and Jesus proclaims, the one who has no sin... Let him be the first to cast the stone. I tell you that because you need to understand that, that God's law, what it said about adultery, was just as serious as what he said about those who commit murder. And we need to understand that adultery must be that important in our lives as well. We must see this command not to commit adultery as something that has serious repercussions. We all recognize that part of the decline of our nation as a whole and, and everything that we can see in our society is that the church has lost its handle on the importance of marriage. And part of that losing its handle on the importance of marriage has been shuffling to the side this idea of adultery. Adultery is serious to God and it was serious to Jesus, so much so that Jesus says... Not only is it the outward act of adultery, but is the inward heart that drives adultery that is important. You see, Jesus is pointing us again to this picture that our inward righteousness is important, that the heart of the matter is the heart. That what we are and our inward, that is the thing that we need to be most concerned about. And as we concern ourselves with the inner righteousness, Jesus will turn us inside out and our outward display of righteousness will be seen. It's important to understand this because as Jesus says, but I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. We need to talk about this idea of uh, this, this message here that Jesus is giving about this man who is allowing his eyes and his hands to be used in a negative way. Look at James chapter 1, verse 13. This will help us, I think, understand what Jesus is saying. James 1, verse 13 says, Let no one, when he is tempted, say, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You see, it's a process, James says. It's a process that we're trying to avoid. We don't want the inward unrighteousness because we don't want to be as outwardly unrighteousness. James is pointing us here to telling us this process of how we are to avoid sin and falling into sin. James desires for believers to avoid sinfulness, so he gives us the method that is used to trap us in sin, hoping that we can avoid it altogether. Listen, James, James helps us see how sin 
sin is nurtured in our hearts so as to prevent it from developing in our lives. One thing that's important for us to note is something that he says in verse 14. Listen to those first three words. But each person, he says. But each person is tempted, he says. James recognizes here the reality of temptation in all of our lives. James clearly says that every person is tempted. And James is warning us not to allow this temptation to grow fully into sin, which means that the, pro the presence of temptation for us is not sin in and of itself. It's the submission to the temptation that becomes sin. Let me say that again because some of you may find great relief in this. The presence of temptation is not sin in and of itself. It's submission to the temptation that becomes sin. I love what Kevin DeYoung says about this and his explaining this idea of the submission to temptation becoming sin. He says, we are told to flee temptation, not because in temptation we've already sinned, but because in the midst of temptation, we desperately feel like we want to. If being tempted was in itself a mark of wickedness, we cannot confess that Jesus Christ, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. It is possible to experience profound temptations to sin while still being blameless from that sin. You see, it's not the temptation that is sin. James says. It's not the temptation that is sin. It is submission to that temptation that then is birthed into sin that will ultimately lead us to death. Jesus, as he's speaking to those disciples that are gathered on that hill, he's telling them, oh, be careful to those temptations of sin. Be careful to the lustful eyes of your heart. Be careful that you do not fall victim into sinfulness. Be careful, as he did last week, be careful with the anger and the hatred that boils in your heart so as to not allow it to become sin towards another person. Here's the very same thing. Jesus is concerned about our inward righteousness. But look what Jesus says as he continues. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? This is another one of those tough sayings of Jesus. Those things that we read and we don't really know what to do with them. This is one of them. Jesus is telling us, giving us instruction to poke our eyeballs out and cut off our hands. We don't really know what to do when Jesus gives such instructions. We could take this literally. We could say what well, Jesus means for us to do just what he has said for us to do. He means for us to poke our eyeballs out and to cut off our hands. I don't think that that's what Jesus intended for us to do. As a matter of fact, I think church history would so prove that all of the disciples of Jesus were blind and had no hands if Jesus intended them to physically remove their eyes and their hands. No, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying that we physically remove these things, but he is telling us that we must set up guardrails in our lives so as to perfect, prevent us from sinning against him. The monastic movements in history 
or, or the monks throughout history, they have tried themselves to do this very thing. The monks believe that if they could just remove themselves from society, if they could remove themselves from the, the society and those, all those temptations that exist in society, then maybe they can find a place of sinlessness. So they'll go hide together in solitude and, and they, will, they will be silent in days and days and, and they will pray and spend their time praying unto God. And we, we ought to appreciate men that desire such holiness. But the truth of the matter is and the fault of the monastic movements is no matter where you hide, you cannot avoid the temptation to sin. It's something that all of us deal with. Maybe you say, well, I don't deal with this temptation. Maybe not, but maybe you deal with the temptation of anger and hatred in your heart and then carrying it out. Maybe your sin is different than the person that's sitting next to you, but I want you to know that it doesn't matter. You can remove both your hands and dig out both of your eyeballs and your propensity to sin will still be there because of the nature of your heart. You see, the recognition of this is important. We can't remove the propensity to sin in our lives, but we can construct barriers and boundaries to help us from falling into the sin of our heart and our minds. And this is what Jesus is telling his disciples. He's saying, guys, whatever you have to do to maintain your inner righteousness, do it. Even to the point of digging out your eyes and cutting off your hands, Jesus is instructing those disciples to do whatever they have to do in order to deal with the sinful lust that's in their hearts so that they might have a true and pure inner righteousness. I love what Sinclair Ferguson says. He says, we ought to act decisively, immediately, even if it's painful. The drastic nature of the remedy is simply the index of the radical danger of the sin. It is not a situation for negotiation. And this is what Jesus is telling his disciples. Whatever you have to do to maintain this inner righteousness, you must be willing to do. Because again, Jesus is turning us inside out. He's reminding us how important it is to be holy to be holy with the presence of the Spirit even among us for that place to be holy on the inside out. And so as people of God, as the disciples, as we're gathered on that hillside listening to Jesus, the message we're hearing is set up guardrails in your life so that you might avoid sin. What do you need to do to avoid sin? For the follower of Jesus... I think in this moment, all of us are bringing our sinfulness to our minds and the Spirit maybe is enlightening us to those things that we need to do to prevent that sin in our life. Temptation is present for all of us. We have to do everything we can to prevent that temptation from birthing and becoming full-grown. That's what James is saying. This is what Jesus is teaching his disciples. I don't, know, I don't know what those things are for you, but I'm certain that Jesus will call his disciples to set up those boundaries and those guardrails in their lives so as to not fall into the trap of sin that is so easily entangling us. It may be you need to separate yourself from a people. It may be you need to separate yourself from a person. It may be you need to remove yourself from an activity or from a place. It could be a device you hold in your hands or something that you watch. What guardrails do you need to construct 
in order to maintain your inner righteousness? What guardrails do you need to build in order to maintain this inner righteousness that Jesus is calling his disciples to? Jesus, he's teaching his disciples how they should live in the midst of a sinful world. Living as a Christian in an unchristian world, it means that we must be salt and light. And in order to be salt and light, we have to live inside out. We have to live concerned about our inner righteousness. And it means we must be willing then to sacrifice those things that so easily lead us into sin. I think there are a couple ways we can practically apply this into our lives. First of all, I think we should evaluate our inner righteousness. This is the same application from last week. We should evaluate our inner righteousness. Are we pursuing holiness? Like, are we really pursuing to be like Jesus? Are we pursuing to reflect His holiness on the inside out? You know, if you'll go back to verse 20 of, of uh, Matthew chapter 5, you'll be reminded of that statement that we dealt with several weeks ago. But it's where Jesus, as he's looking into the eyes of his disciples, he said, I'm telling you, uh, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus isn't building a new set of, uh, of righteous religious people He's telling them that if they're going to find righteousness, it's going to be because they rest in Him. That they have been imputed His righteousness. That forensically they have been made righteous as a result of His work. And now He's telling them, take that righteousness and live it on the inside out. All of us need to evaluate our inner righteousness. And the next thing that we can do practically to apply this into our lives is, is we need to place guardrails in our lives. There are a couple of things that have happened over the last year, year and a half that I thought would never happen in union. Uh, one of them is, is that, uh, and this is not a result of COVID, just life in general. One of them is, is I, I thought union would never have a volleyball team. I mean, we don't even know what volleyball is. But the other thing is, I thought union would never have a bowling team. I mean... I don't like to bowl personally, but I don't like to bowl because I can't win at bowling and I don't like to do anything I can't win at. Some of you may like to bowl. The only way I'm ever successful in bowling is if they'll take those rails and they'll put them over in the gutters. If they'll put those rails in the gutters, I'm an ace. But without those rails in the gutters, every time I'm putting it in the gutter. And as simple as that might be a picture for you, this is what Jesus is telling his disciples. He's saying, put the rails in the gutter. Poke out your eye, cut off your hand. Not literally, but put those guardrails in. And when you put that ball on that alley with those guardrails in, you will never find yourself in the gutter. But if you don't put guardrails up, there's going to come a time that the gutter is where you're going to be. You see, we put guardrails in our lives. We poke our eyes out or cut our hands off. We do that so that we don't find ourselves in the gutter. We don't find ourselves in the midst of the sin that, that so easily entangles us. We need to evaluate our inner righteousness, but the simplicity of this message is we just need to put guardrails in our lives. 
We need to ask ourselves those questions about people, places, and things that might need to be removed or set aside so that our inner righteousness might be turned inside out for the world to see our outward righteous, though we, so we might be the salt and the light of the world. Maybe one of the most practical questions we could find ourselves at the end of this message. What do you need to put guardrails around? God, we ask that you would help us, Lord, in the power of the Holy Spirit to realize, God, where we need to place guardrails. To realize, God, where we need to set up some standards of living that will thereby keep us out of the gutter. God, we are all grateful, Lord, that your righteousness, your righteousness, God, has been imputed on us. But God, we are also grateful that you've called us to live in righteousness. All of us, Lord, more than likely have some areas of temptation in our life. Maybe different for every man and every woman in this place. But God, let us desire to live from the inside out. Let us desire to set up those guardrails to keep us out of the gutter. Lord, as we stand and as we worship, join our hearts together and worship, Lord, would you continue to be with us as a people. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Lord.